Andy, thank you for that kind introduction and for opening the word for us to begin. Um, just so I can kind of get used to the lights here and the sound of my own voice over these speakers. Um, I got to tell you a little story. I, uh, in, pre in preparing for this sermon, uh, early in the week, I had a couple of dreams. I had one on Monday night where uh, I, woke, I sat up in bed. I, I woke up uh, from this dream because uh, in this dream, I was coming up to, to preach this message, and I, I missed one of the steps coming up and sprawled out on the stage like, you know, took out all the, the worship material, and it, just, it was just a mess, and uh, I'm pretty sure it would have hit YouTube, you know, before, the, before I said amen at the end. Um, so I, I, you know, I took a moment and calmed myself from that. And then the next night I had a dream that I was up here preaching and my, uh, uh, my nose started to bleed. And uh, I thought, oh man, I sat up in bed and I, in my dream, I, did, I don't know what I did in my dream to solve that problem, but I sat up on my bed and I started uh, immediately, um, you know, trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do? Just so you know, there's a, there's a box of Kleenex staged behind that um, <laughs> that speaker over there. And if that happens, I'm putting Kleenex up my nose and we're going to carry on. So, so in that event, if, it, if it's distracting to you, you know, just close your eyes and keep listening, okay? Um, I, I, uh, I, I love Andy and Brett and every, our, our whole staff. It's just amazing. But um, those guys in particular, they, they just shepherd my heart well, and they, they pastor me well. And, and uh, so on Wednesday, when we meet regularly, I, I shared those two dreams with those two guys, you know, and I expected them to give me some, you know, some, some good counsel, you know, that, uh, you know, remember, Andy, this, it's the Lord's word, you know, and all those kinds of good words. No, they both doubled over in laughter. Um, so... Uh, so it's up to me. I have to remind us, and we're going to do it. Let, let, let's, let's pray together. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, um, God, remind us, remind me that the word that sets before us now is your word. And you have a word for us in this text for every one of us. You desire to speak to our hearts, so God, I pray that you will open our eyes to see and our ears to hear, open our minds to receive your message. And God, I boldly pray that you will just get me out of the way. Use me as a delivery instrument only so that your word will be proclaimed here and nothing more. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, if we're ever uh, tempted to question the authenticity of the Bible, a chapter like 2 Samuel 11 is here to set us straight. This is a really hard text. Um, this is one of those stories that forces us to look at the underbelly of humanity. And the truth is, we would rather just skip over this chapter of David's life and pretend it doesn't exist because it makes us uncomfortable. One thing is certain, if ancient authors had set out to create a religion centered on a non-existent God, and if those same authors had elevated this character named David to the status of a man after God's own heart, well, they certainly would not have included this sordid tale of David's life. And yet, here we are at 2 Samuel 11 because God is real. And because David is not the hero of the story, God is. 
During this series on the life of David, each week Andy and Brett have done a great job of reminding us that the story of King David ultimately points us to the greater David, the greater king, the perfect king, our Lord Jesus. And if ever there was a story that points us to our own need for Jesus, it's this story of David. Because ultimately this, this ugly story of David, it's, it's our story. Now I realize that statement may hit some of you kind of offensively. Especially when you consider the gravity of David's sins in this account. But I encourage you to stick with me as we journey together through this narrative. I believe its application to each of our lives will will come clear as we carefully consider it. So let's dig in first by considering David's complacency. Andy just read it, so I'm not going to read it again, but, but focus in on verses 1 and 2. And if you had the privilege of, of hearing Andy's sermon two weeks ago about David's mercy and grace shown to Mephibosheth, well then you have a really powerful picture in your head of, of the spiritual high that David has enjoyed in the time leading up to this account in 2 Samuel 11. And I know all too well from personal experience, as likely you do too, that on the heels of our spiritual highs, the enemy lurks just around the corner with his weapons of complacency and temptation. The narrator in our text does not mince words. He makes it clear that David should have been out on the field with his army. But instead, he was lounging about in the palace. He went out onto his rooftop veranda and happened to gaze down upon a woman who was bathing. A very beautiful woman, the text tells us. You see, David's complacency has led him into temptation. And as the story progresses, we're going to see all the ugly places where that temptation leads. But before we proceed with that, let's take a moment to recognize that temptation in and of itself is not sin. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4 teaches For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Now that verse, of course, is speaking of our Lord Jesus. And yet for you and me, all too often the temptations before us progress rapidly into sin just as they did for King David in the account that sets before us now. Friends, David could have and should have turned his eyes away. He could have returned to the safety of his own room and found comfort in the presence of the Lord. But that's not what David did. And the truth is, 
Such a right response to temptation is very difficult for us to carry out during our times of complacency. So I think maybe we need to ask ourselves, what does complacency look like for me? And what safeguards can I trust to help me avoid complacency? I believe the answer lies in our our habits of grace. You may know them as spiritual disciplines. Are we daily reading the word of God? Are we memorizing and meditating upon his word? Are we pouring out our hearts to God in prayer? Confessing our sins to him and asking for Holy Spirit strength to resist the temptations before us? Are we worshiping God in prayer? Setting our hearts and minds upon his holiness? Are we regularly spending time in the fellowship of God's people in corporate worship in our city group in men's and women's Bible studies and the list goes on of opportunities I want to recommend a resource to you this little book called Habits of Grace by David Mathis um, has been very helpful to me as I have strived to develop and improve my habits of grace They're not works that earn God's favor, but they're, think of your habits of grace as um, those things that put us in in the way of Jesus. They put us in his path. So if you need help along those habits of grace, David Mathis. Well, unfortunately, David didn't turn away from the temptation before him. Instead, he followed a downward spiral of sinfulness that is so common to mankind. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death, as James ironically details in the New Testament. David's temptation quickly progressed to desire. And desire led directly to David's corruption. So now focus in on verses three to five that Andy just read for us. Again, the narrator doesn't waste words here. And yet I I think the CSB translation that Andy just read from leaves one detail somewhat unclear in our minds. Was this a sin of David only? Or was this a sin of both David and Bathsheba? To be fair, the text doesn't explicitly tell us the answer to that question, but I believe the wording of the ESV translation, which which is slightly closer to the original text, is helpful here. So listen to verses four and five again from the the ESV. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house 
And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Commentator Walter Brueggemann captures the tone of this text very well. The action is quick. The verbs rush as David, excuse me, the verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. He sent, he took, he lay. The royal deed of self-indulgence does not take very long. There is no adornment to the action. The woman then gets some verbs. She returned. She conceived. The action is so stark. There's nothing but action. There's no conversation. There's no hint of caring, of affection, of love. Only lust. David does not call her by name does not even speak to her. At the end of the encounter, she is only the woman. The verb that finally counts is conceived. But the telling verb is he took her. David was a powerful man. As king, No one under his reign had the right to deny David's wishes. No person had the right to tell David no. Certainly not Bathsheba. So as we begin to grasp the depth of David's sin, we must also recognize the reality of Bathsheba's victimization. And with that in mind, I feel like we need to push the pause button for a moment. There are undoubtedly people in this room who have suffered as victims of the sins of another, who have felt powerless in the face of sinful human aggression. Please don't hear what I'm about to say as trite cliché but as sincere truth. God will meet you at your place of greatest need. In the depths of your pain and abuse, he has not abandoned you. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. There is healing for sin's victims at the feet of Jesus. And as a church, we want to be a safe place for you to experience the warmth and the healing of Christ's love. If you need someone to talk with, someone to pray with you, someone to weep with you, it would be our honor to provide that. And if you need someone to counsel you and direct you with some next steps, to connect you with resources that you may need. We have people that are able to do that as well. The gravity of this text really should set us back. It is heartbreaking to see how quickly and how deep David has fallen into sin. 
This is the king that God himself handpicked to lead his people, Israel. David is the man described as a man after God's own heart. And yet, here he has fallen. The text doesn't give us this detail, but I suspect that David had a moment of sorrow over his sin immediately following his walk down the road of depravity. But then, David was hit with the stark reality that sin has consequences. And sometimes those consequences of our sin land front and center. This is one of those times for David. As the narrator told us, the woman was pregnant. And in that moment, David again had a choice. God had set before him an opportunity to come clean. David could have then and there repented of his sin. He should have humbled himself confessed his sin to God and to man and begged for forgiveness. But again, that's not what David did. Instead, he pushed away the feelings of sorrow and he went into cover-up mode, thereby walking into greater and greater sin. I can't help but think at a moment like this that reflection may be required for some of us. Is there a sin issue that's causing you sorrow? Perhaps one that you've worked hard to cover up, but not yet repented of? If so, then I urge you to take heed and learn lessons from the poor example of David in this case. Let's examine the cost of David's cover up. I'm gonna pick up reading the text at verse six. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hethite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. Well, David questioned Uriah. Haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, the ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, David, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah. And tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him. And David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. 
See, David's got a problem. The woman's pregnant. So he began to orchestrate a cover-up by ordering her husband home from the battlefield for some much-deserved R&R. David sent for Uriah. He ordered Uriah to go home and enjoy all of its comforts. David even sent a gift over to Uriah's house. Perhaps a bottle of champagne and some fresh strawberries. You get the idea. It seems as if David is in complete control of this situation. And yet, the twist in the narrative is that David is not in control. God is. And God controls the situation through the integrity of Uriah. The the great contrast of this narrative is that Uriah's integrity would not allow David to cover up his own lack of integrity. And it was Uriah's integrity that ultimately led to David murdering the man. Continue reading with me, picking up at verse 14. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men of David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hethite also died. I hope you didn't miss the dirty little detail that David made Uriah hand deliver the message that ordered his death. Under royal seal, of course. And as Uriah's lifeless body was carried off the battlefield, the downward spiral of sin described by James has reached its fulfillment in the life of David. As the narrative continues, verses 18 to 25 detail the communication between David and the army commander, Joab. Joab's message to David was clear. The king's unconventional orders have been carried out, directly resulting in Israeli casualties on the front line, including the death of one Uriah. David seemed unfazed by the loss of life and even encouraged Joab to think nothing more of it. And with those calloused words, David seems to be washing his hands of the whole ugly episode. So does David just get away with it? Is he able to just push it under the rug and pretend it never happened? No. Again, we all know that sin has consequences. And David is no exception. As David's story moves on from here, we'll see several consequences directly related to these sins. 
which will haunt David for the rest of his life. We don't see those earthly consequences play out just yet. But the chapter ends with God's chilling assessment of David's behavior. Look with me down at verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. The Lord considered David's behavior to be evil. Notice that God doesn't call David's behavior a mistake. He doesn't call it a slip up. He doesn't call it a struggle or any other therapeutic word that we might be tempted to use today when we're talking about our own sin. God calls David's sin evil. That is God's assessment of David's behavior. So where do we go from here? Where do we rightly find application to our own lives from this story of David? My prayer is that the story of David's corruption that will lead every one of us on a beeline to the cross of Jesus. Let's get there by locating ourselves in the story. Some of us, have, as we've already discussed, will relate with Bathsheba or perhaps even Uriah as the victim of another person's sinful behavior. We may even relate to Joab as one who gets caught up in the crossfire, so to speak, of another person's sinful behavior. But if we are tempted to locate ourselves only with Bathsheba, or Uriah, or Joab, I believe we would be remiss. Because the truth is that every one of us should identify at some level with the explicit guilt of David. Every one of us is guilty of sin, and as such, we are all unable to stand on our own merit before our holy and righteous God. Now, we may have some difficulty locating ourselves next to David in this instance because we have been fortunate enough to avoid the particularly ugly sins of adultery and murder or in some way exploiting a weaker victim. And if so, I believe we should praise God with the, the John Bradford quote, there but for the grace of God go I. Amen? But we must also remind ourselves of Jesus' own teaching in his Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Jesus said, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, who, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, Everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her 
in his heart. Jesus leaves no in no space for an interpretation other than God's assessment of our sinful behavior. That it is evil. No matter how domestic it may appear by comparison. And it was with this teaching of Jesus at the front of his mind that Dale Ralph, Dale Ralph Davis exhorts his readers, listen to this, the warning in this text reaches far beyond King David and professes all, excuse me, and touches all professed servants of Christ. That's you and me. How suddenly and fatally any of us can fall. Don't look at verses 1 through 5 and stammer something about being a New Testament Christian. What difference does that make? What immunity does that give you? If you begin to say, oh, I could never, then you have already taken the first step in your fall. Don't ever be surprised at what you are capable of. Dear friends, Mr. Davis has cut me to the heart, as I suspect he has you too. But rather than wallowing in the feeling of being offended, I believe God is calling us to give honest consideration to the sin that lies at the base of that feeling of offense. That sin is called pride. It's our pride that causes us to look down our noses at David's sin, concluding that we would never do such a thing. And if you'll allow me to bring it a little closer to home, it's our pride that causes us to look down our neighbor, look down at our neighbor, who at this very moment may be sleeping in the alley just beyond that wall behind me. It's our pride that causes us to neglect our spiritual disciplines because on our best days, when we somehow sense that we're performing well, our human tendency is to set Jesus up on the shelf. Don't worry, Jesus. We think to ourselves, I've got this now. You stay over there and mind your own business and I'll let you know if I need you. Oh, Lord Jesus, forgive me. You see, in those moments when we're performing well, Satan uses our pride as a tool to turn our hearts away from Jesus, telling us the lie that we're so good we really don't need him. But our pride is not the only tool at Satan's disposal. Pride has an ugly stepsister that serves him equally well. It's shame. Shame is what tends to dominate our thoughts when we know we've done wrong. And just as powerfully, at times when the wrongdoing of another has been inflicted upon us. Ironically, in the story of David and Bathsheba, I suspect they both were steeped in shame following the sinful deed of David. It was the sin of David that caused great shame for them both. And in such moments, Satan uses shame to convince us that we cannot not possibly be loved by God. 
Friends, this brings us full circle to where we began today. And thankfully, it's going to hit us with a dose of good news. Amen? Are you ready for that? I am. Once again, the story of David has pointed us to our need for a greater David, a perfect David, our Lord Jesus. For those who walked in here today full of shame, believing the lie that you do not matter to God or that God does not love you, whether that's due to your own sin or the victimizing impact of the sin of another, either way, I urge you to turn your eyes upon Jesus. Allow yourself to be overwhelmed by the love and grace of God that was poured out for you in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. In Christ, you are not defined by the worst things you've done, nor by the worst things that have been done to you. It's at the glorious moment of trusting in Jesus alone for our right standing before God that the Father runs to us, throws his arms around us and kisses our face, saying, welcome home, my child. If, on the other hand, you walked in here today full of self-righteous pride, built upon the glory, (laughs) the glory of your own good performance, then I urge you also to turn your eyes upon Jesus. Allow yourself to be overwhelmed and humbled by his righteousness and his glory. And allow the perfection of Jesus to remind you that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. For we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And once again, it's in that moment, that glorious moment of realizing that we have nothing good to offer God that we feel the same loving embrace of the Father. We feel the same affectionate kiss upon our cheek and receive the Father's invitation into his banquet room. You see, friends, we, we have to remind ourselves every day, every week, that our life in Christ is by the power of the grace of the gospel and has nothing to do with our performance, good or bad. Our salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And our good works, when they, when they do come, well, they are by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. Because even our good works are a gift of God, made possible through the power of the gospel. So we'll end with these words. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Amen? Let's pray.